is the original. <laughs> Thankfully, our WB's, our, our studio BC technology is not advanced to the point where you can read what I'm thinking. <laughs> <laughs> Thank goodness for that. Happy Monday. Welcome to Studio BZ. I'm Paula Evan. And I'm John Keller. Uh, Paula, good to see you. Good to see you. Good Hi, to John. BZing you, good I should say. Good to you. And uh, on this edition of Studio BZ, my conversation with author, musician Ryan Walsh, we're going into the Wayback Machine to the Boston of 1968. And uh, Ryan Walsh has written a book that brings it all roaring back with a very modern day twist at the end. It's uh, uh, it's about a Van Morrison's epic album Astro Weeks, but it's about much, much more than that. And my conversation with him is coming up. And we also have our producer Brooke Dearborn, who's here. Hi, with us. Hey, Brooke. hi, hi. Good Sorry to see for you missing again. Last week we missed you last week. But and I'm Jonathan back. Case is at the controls as always. Um, we, I have a really interesting conversation that Leanna Martin and I had with Father Jim Martin. No uh, relation. Uh, Father Jim Martin is a Jesuit who you might have seen on Twitter because he has a massive Twitter following. He is a prolific writer, editor of America Magazine, which is the Jesuit publication. And he's written a new book called Building a Bridge. And his thesis is that the Catholic Church in America has to do a better job of reaching out to the LGBT community. And he has some interesting things to say about his reaction as he's gone on his book tour about who shows up, parents, grandparents, older Catholics who now know their son or nephew or friend is gay and they don't like the way they're spoken about or have been treated in the past and really want the church to acknowledge the gay community, but also really lead an adjustment in the way that gay Catholics are addressed. Interesting how fast the generation gap on social issues can close Mm -hmm. when a loved one comes into the mix. And then uh, speaking of change... Uh, We're about to undergo a big change here in Massachusetts with the arrival of legalized recreational marijuana. Uh, It just now a little over a month and a half, a couple of months away, I should say. Uh, July, right, July 1st. And um, uh, we're going to call in our very own WBZ doctor, Dr. Malika Marshall, just for an update on what is the state of the art of medical and scientific research into what pot does and doesn't do the sort of the the medical realities of what we're about to face. Is it true that the stuff now is much stronger than what people experienced in the past? We're also going to have a really interesting debrief with (laughs) WB. Yes, 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 Jonathan reports. It's stronger now, really. From the corner of of the BC Thank you for that live update from the scene, (laughs) from the front lines. Reporting live. Our city is truly the hub, the hub of the universe. If I ventured in the slipstream Between the viaducts of your dream Where my world steel rims crack And the ditch and the back roads stop Could you find me? Or would you kiss my eyes? An album... Most people consider one of the greatest rock albums of all time, Van Morrison's Astral Weeks. 
yet another amazing and fascinating product of an amazing, fascinating year, 1968. And amid all of the 50th anniversary remembrances of that year, uh, one of the most interesting ones is the book Astro Weeks, A Secret History of 1968 by musician and writer Ryan Walsh. And he joins us now. Ryan, uh, everybody has favorite albums, albums they consider great, uh, certainly from that period of time in the late 1960s. What's so special about Astro Weeks and what makes it worth the, the full historical context treatment that you give it? Well, that's a question I spent a whole book trying to answer. <laughs> yeah. Well, summarize uh, it in and, 10 to 15 seconds, a, would you? Right. That's kind of a cutesy way also of skipping around, you know, the great mystery of, of, of what makes music great. Sometimes it's hard to describe. It's a feeling you feel when you put it on. And, and that album's feelings that it provided me just kind of uh, – I. I, almost saved me, I would say. It just, they really um, lifted, that album just lifted me up at a time I needed it. And so when I fi- figured out it had roots in Boston, I felt indebted to figure out every single detail about what that was all about. Well, in the, their review of your book, uh, uh, one of a number of rave reviews of the book, the L.A. Review of Books wrote, this is a book about the hub of a very weird universe. Uh, that's, yeah. our, that's our city we're talking about. I was a teenager growing up in Cambridge at that time, and uh, I, I guess I can attest to that. I, explain to people who weren't around here then what that means. Well, um, the, the scene painted in the book is a Boston that's markedly different than what you might see today. Uh, I've always lived here in Boston. I love this city. But the, what I found in the... Um, research for the book was uh, a stranger city. I, I make a joke that maybe the book doesn't make the case that this city's cooler than it is, but it's certainly weirder than you might think it is. Uh, and that included everything from underground newspapers, a multitude of people claiming they were God, um, uh, you know, rock palaces with psychedelic light shows, not only entertaining the kids, but fascinating adults in the press. The press were kind of fascinated with the counterculture and watching their every move. And, uh, you know, of course, all this is wildly intensified by um, Vietnam protests, uh, you know, where people's family and friends were being plucked out of a lottery to go fight and possibly die somewhere on the other side of the world. And you had Timothy Leary over there at Harvard openly experimenting with with LSD. Yeah, let's not forget drugs. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it all adds up to the hub of a very weird universe, as that review puts it. So into this turbulent, vibrant, if, if you will, very American sort of context and, and milieu comes this very low-key, almost secretive Scotsman, or Irishman, I should say, uh, Van Morrison. What a weird fit. Well, it's, a, you know, so many stories start with a stranger coming to town, and this is no different. It's unlikely that he would end up in Boston, and it's even unlikelier when you re- learn the reason. And that reason is that he was on the run from mobbed-up record people in New York, and he had recently had a guitar smashed over his head. His hotel door was full of bullets, and someone threw him a lifeline in Boston, and 
he uh, he's a real fish out of water when he gets here, and and that period is what my book concentrates on. Now he had made a name for himself with an R and B group called Them, uh, and had had a solo hit just the year before in 1967, uh, "Brown Eyed Girl," the sort of fizzy pop song that charted uh, uh, in America. Uh, what was it about this place and time that combined with Van Morrison's own intuition or his own creativity produced an album as antithetical to Brown Eyed Girl as Astro Weeks was? Right. Well, he seemed to spend his entire time in Boston figuring out how to rebel or change or shift away from that Brown Eyed Girl sound. There's, he calls himself in his band, the Van Morrison controversy when he's in Boston. It's the only time he uses that name. And there's really kind of three lineups of that band that he cycles through in just a scant eight months. And the first one sounds kind of like Brown Eye Girl. And the second version sounds truly electric and hyper and kind of speedy. And then, you know, he has that dream and Kicks, kicks all electric instruments out of the band, and suddenly there's an acoustic sound, and it sounds a lot like what you'll hear on Astro Weeks recorded months later. So what was it about the Boston of 1968 that helped uh, spawn this creativity? Well, it's interesting. You know, for it's, it's definitely about people and relationships. That's always affecting creativity. So, you know, these you know, very young band of, of kids uh, here in Boston who were kind of, um, you know, some of them were a little, uh, they felt they were crazy or going through something themselves. So, you know, people describe the entire spring summer for Van Morrison in Boston as chaotic and, and confusing. So, you know, you could make the argument that making very pastoral acoustic music is some kind of opposition to that, uh, an expression of, man, I need some peace. <laughs> Things are pretty crazy right now. Well, Boston, certainly Boston and Cambridge, were also in this era of the mid-60s uh, a sort of a, a national or even international hub of folk music. You had Club 47, now known as Passim's. You had the right. Unicorn down in the, uh, near where Berkeley is today. Uh, mm-hmm. And you had a... a uh, you had a lot of interesting elements in the music scene, uh, a lot of which, uh, Ryan, seem no longer to exist, at least in Boston. Well, it's different. I wouldn't say it no longer exists. I'm pretty resistant to, you know, nostalgia in the form of those were the good old days and now everything's bad. <laughs> okay. things, are, things are different, but, you know, anything lacking uh, today, perhaps it's made up for by other things, you know, like – uh, less acceptable outlook towards systematic race, racism or, you know, a cleaner city. So, and additionally though, I, there's a lot of great music clubs in Boston and a lot of great bands. Um, it's just different. I really hesitate to compare, um, different areas of the city in a this one was better. This one was worse. Mm-hmm. Different is the way to describe it. Well, one difference was originally with, uh, you know, with Avatar, uh, the old Boston After Dark, then the Boston Phoenix, which in turn spawned the real paper. You had um, 
a more, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but a more vibrant or more voluminous alternative press to help support uh, a, a music scene, underground or otherwise. And also, it was a lot cheaper to find a rehearsal space to live here back then if you were getting by on occasional club gigs uh, than it is now. That, that, those two things are certainly true. And, you know, things like WVCN and the Phoenix, which the origin of which I trace in the book, those um, were great boons to my band when we started in late 2005. And um, you're right. Those things both came to an end within the last 10 years. Um, but again, you know, the, there's the Internet and Twitter, and that's almost like everyone is a media. Yeah. So um, I do see – but, you know, the things that start in the story I tell in the book, I do feel like a lot of them found it, their end point in the last 10 years. So it is kind of like a 50-year story. But you're right. Things uh, – and certainly the city is too expensive. For well, and, and you know, in that vein, and again, I, I definitely take your point about not sinking back into uh, gauzy nostalgia for the good old days. <laughs> but uh, there's been a lot of hand-wringing in the Boston arts community uh, and among its admirers in recent years about a lack of support for the arts and for artists. And we referenced rising real estate prices, pricing artists out of the mix, not just musicians, but other kinds of artists, uh, but also uh, in other parts of the world and other parts of the country, government steps up and does a lot to help support a thriving artistic community do we have a problem there now in this day and age? Oh, yeah. Uh, the countrywide, I think there's a definite problem with a, uh, you know, a de-emphasis on the arts. I think arts aren't a luxury. I don't think they're a bonus. I think it's literally a way to stay sane and to make people realize just how beautiful this world is. It's a heartbreak for me that the country, especially recently under this administration, is completely devalued the arts they're they're essential so um we 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 definitely need to figure that out but then again you know it's like nature finds a way art finds a way you uh you'll see no shortage of people creating things and finding ways to get them out there but more support would certainly be wise and helpful Ryan, one little personal note I want to close on here. And again, as somebody growing up in Cambridge, you know, I would get on my bike and ride down to Cambridge Common, get in contact high. I didn't know what it was back then. But, uh, and, uh, you know, your, your, your free live entertainment on a Saturday afternoon would be Sly and the Family Stone or the Buddy Miles Express. And then you'd go mm. see, you could go down to uh, uh, the clubs and see uh, the Chambers Brothers. Uh, performing. Uh, 1968, of course, was the year that de uh, the de snap decision to televise a James Brown concert at Boston Garden helped Boston avert some of the uh, trouble and violence that consumed other cities in the wake of the, the murder of Dr. King. And uh, what, what I'm trying to get at is back then, it seemed to me there were, were signs of an integrated music scene. Uh, that that mm -hmm. was thriving. Then you got into the early 70s. I remember when a station named WCOZ on the FM dial uh, stirred up a lot of controversy by soaring to the top of the ratings with an all-white playlist. And there was really? a lot of uproar over what happened to the black artists, what happened to R&B. Well, 
Um, right. Are we, is this, is this more nostalgia myth-making or did we really have something good going on in terms of an interracial music scene that somehow we lost along the way? Oh, it's, that's a very difficult question. Um, you know, uh, someone at WBUR recently did a great article, he's Boston hostile to hip hop. Just talking about venues that will book hip hop shows. It's a question, unfortunately, I think every generation has to wrestle with. Well, uh, just to put a period on it, uh, to somebody who didn't live through that era, uh, but is a Bostonian now and wants to understand, what's the takeaway for them to get them to pick up a copy of your book? Um, I would say you'd love music and creativity or you love the city or you love any of the marquee names that appear in it. And uh, I think you're going to enjoy this story. Um, like that review you quoted said, it's a weird story. Um, but I like strange things and unusual people. And this book is chock full of them. Now, in addition to being a writer, you're a, you're a working musician, correct? Right. I do. I uh, play guitar and sing and write the songs in a band called Hallelujah the Hills. Any upcoming gigs in the area where listeners can check you out? Sure. We're going to be in Providence in May and in Jamaica Plain in July. Uh, people can visit hallelujahthehills.com for my music stuff and astralweeks.net for the book. The book is Astral Weeks, A Secret History of 1968. The author is Ryan Walsh. Ryan, thanks and good luck with the book. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Just Paula, I thought Ryan made a great point when he cautioned against getting too nostalgic for the good old days and glorifying them as opposed to the harsh reality of now. Uh, But as we heard in the interview, he acknowledges that, you know, between soaring housing costs, both for living and for working in for artists, uh, and cutbacks in support for the arts from government at both the federal and at the local level, uh, these are tougher times for artists. And certainly, as I mentioned to him in the conversation, you know, Back in the day, here I go, okay, but I'm, I, the, it, it, it's true. But the day was there. Back in the day, you had, you had the Phoenix, you had the mm-hmm. real paper, you had yeah. a million different opportunities to get the word out about what you were doing. Okay, now you have the internet. But it just seems uh, as if maybe something's been lost. And that, to me, is a big mistake, not just culturally, but economically. Got the arts is one of the main calling cards we have. Well, and here's the thing. You've got Berkeley College of Music. You have the conservatory. You have so many talented musicians, never mind what people in the BSO do on the side. Uh, and it, it is frustrating. I have to say, I you know, uh, I am from a different generation. I was uh, born in the late 60s. But what I do remember of the late 70s, All my older brothers and sisters, there are many of them, and they are 10 to 20 years older than I am. They were coming into Kenmore Square, and the Ratskeller was there. You know, you had uh, the early, early police perform there. You had... um, uh, Bruce Springsteen, you know, Lou all Reed, these, yeah. Louis, they would 
talk, they talk now about remembering that Boston. Yeah. And you always had this sense, you know, when I would hear these older brothers and sisters coming back from being in Boston, there was this other culture going on where you could see amazing music uh, the grown-ups didn't know about. And it kind of makes me feel as though the, the change in Times Square in New York, how corporatized Times Square is now compared to what it looked like in the 70s, Kenmore Square, a lot of the parts of Boston that used to really be the home to artists have flipped over. And well, it, it's not as comfortable for them or as welcoming as I mean, it the business was. model has changed. Yeah, you know, yes. there was a club down on Boylston Street right around the corner from Berkeley overlooking the pike called the Unicorn above Jack's Drum Shop for many, many years. And, and all the big names would come through there that weren't playing the tea party or what have you. That's long gone. And I wonder if a, a business venture like that could make it anymore. Or even a, a paper like the Boston Phoenix. It just yeah. wouldn't. No, the business model collapsed, the Craigslist and the Internet stole it. Of course, I mean, there are alternatives now. I'm personally aware of at least one place in suburban Boston where a guy has fitted out his basement as a studio, a a, a recording quality studio with seats. And it's by invitation, but you get on an email list and you show up and pay a modest fee and get to see hot new musicians performing and recording. And it, it, it sounds great. I haven't been yet, but I'm looking forward to it. And of course, the good news for young artists is they have more control. I mean, you can go on YouTube and, you know, put your videos out there or have a podcast, but you do are not at the mercy of a label anymore. You know, you're not at the mercy of going to New York or LA and begging someone to give you some time. So I do think that is the great news. But, you know, for for us to not do everything we could do, to stimulate the arts community around here is just total suicide Mm. because, you know, what is our great asset here? It's certainly not the weather. Okay, we we win championships. I get that. (laughs) But it's the young people, uh, the, the colleges, the universities, the vibrancy and creativity that that brings. And uh, if you're not turning that into a viable uh, draw within your communities, I, I think you're nuts. But, but can't people find a community online? I mean, it hasn't that become different that musicians are able to put out their own stuff and control it and no, find no, an audience that way? No question. I just find it hard to believe that there isn't something that's lost if we, in fact, have lost the kind of opportunity you once had as a young musician around here to perform live for others. Uh, yes, you can get your product right up there on YouTube or whatever, but I don't know. I, I guess I would put a period on it by saying on behalf of all old fogies that our message ought to be to emerging creative people, get on my lawn. Get yeah. on my lawn. <laughs> I like it. is a Jesuit priest and writer and editor-at-large of America, the Jesuit magazine. And his book, Building a Bridge, is about how the Catholic Church and the LGBT community can enter into a relationship of respect, compassion, and sensitivity. You might know Father Jim from his enormous Twitter following, (laughs) Uh, but you also, welcome Father Jim, thanks for coming in to talk with us. You uh, were trained in this area. 
In the well, Boston area. Yes, I was. I did my Jesuit novitiate in Jamaica Plain. I studied at the Weston School of Theology in Cambridge, and I go to uh, Eastern Point Retreat House in Gloucester a lot. So I really consider Boston my spiritual home. In terms of this book, it might seem as though building a bridge is something that might seem impossible for people in the LGBT community, considering the way they are spoken about and oftentimes treated uh, by the Catholic Church at large. What do you say to them when you give talks about your book? Well, I always remind people that LGBT Catholics already are a part of the church, right? They're baptized, so they have, they're as much a part of the church as, uh, as the Pope, as Cardinal O'Malley or me. And also there are lots of places like St. Cecilia uh, in the Back Bay uh, where they're very welcome. So I, I, I try to sort of impress upon them the fact that they already are members of the church. You've had some interesting conversations with older Catholics whose minds and attitudes have really shifted about dealing with the LGBT community. Well, I think that's right. As more and more Catholics come out and are open about their sexuality and their identity, it affects more and more families and more and more parents and grandparents. And I think some of the most emotional uh, conversations I've had uh, have been from parents who have said, you know, thank you. Uh, you know, my lesbian daughter has always felt estranged or my gay son has never felt welcome. And then they feel welcome by extension. And yet, despite your book, despite Pope Francis saying, who am I to judge, there are still people within the Catholic Church, certainly at the Vatican, who might disagree with your message. Um, what do you say to them? Well, I remind them that the book has the official approval of my Jesuit superiors. It's been endorsed by uh, Cardinal Farrell and Cardinal Tobin. It's well within Catholic teaching. And, you know, when they read it, they're okay with it. I think what um, makes people disturbed is reading things online that are kind of a misconstrual of what I'm trying to say. Mm -hmm. And what is it you're trying to say? What's the most important message to this community? That we need to reach out and welcome LGBT Catholics with, as the catechism says, respect, compassion, and sensitivity. It's a very simple message. And that Jesus Jesus himself went out and reached out to the marginalized first. So you base your argument, in fact, in the catechism, and yet the Vatican Church's position, official position, remains that it is a sin and that gay marriage, they are opposed to gay marriage. Where do we go from here? Well, it's important to say that being homosexual is not a sin. It's, it's the, the activity. Uh, and as you say, same-sex marriage is off the table. But I'm trying to focus on areas of commonality, just you know, welcoming LGBT people, uh, respecting their humanity and their dignity, and not talking about the same-sex marriage and things like that, but just basic things like how can we make them feel more welcome in the church, in their parishes. Have you met gay Catholics, though, who say to you, I love this message, and yet, to me, respect means that I, that I can be married, that I can be married to the person that I love, and yet the Catholic Church tells me that I cannot. Oh, I meet many gay Catholics like that. And what I try to say is, you know, if we're going to start building a bridge, we don't start at the place where people are the furthest apart, right, which is on the issue of gay marriage. If you want to build a bridge between the Catholic hierarchy and the LGBT community, start with areas of possible commonality, right? So just dialogue. And frankly, I'm just getting trying to get people in the same room for a conversation just so they can kind of get to know LGBT mm. Catholics. And I've heard you in other talks point out that unfortunately a lot of people in the gay community or certainly, you know, in the transgender community, uh, people have said callous things to them, even Catholic priests. Uh, and, and how do you tell them to hang in there uh, if they feel really marginalized? Well, and you're right. People have said really callous things to them. I, I hear them. I listen to them. Um, I try to hear where they are and how painful it is. I sometimes apologize. But sometimes I'll say, uh, you know, something someone told me a couple of years ago, which is if you went to a bad physician, you know, you would never, you wouldn't say to yourself, well, I'm never going to see a doctor again. So I try to say to them, you know, there are priests out there that say dumb things. That does not mean that that's the whole church, right? Well, Father James Martin writing about compassion and respect and sensitivity, something that is universal, like uh, as the Catholic Church teaches. We appreciate you coming in tonight. Thank you so much. My pleasure. This is Greater Boston, cradle of American democracy.
Hello? Gary. Hi, it's Paula. Hey, Paula. So we wanted to touch base with you and just quickly talk about the story you did last week because that was one of the biggest talkers we've had in a long time. In a nutshell. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> you were, it was the town of Georgetown, correct? Is that where the family lived? Yes, that's that's correct. And so you went up there to talk to a mother who had pulled her four-year-old daughter from the local preschool because the teachers at the school had told the children they were not allowed to call someone their best friend anymore. Yes, right? that's, that's correct. So the- uh, one, of the, yeah, one of the students was out uh, for lunch or one of the classes, whatever it may have been, and she told her other friend, that you're my best friend, and one of the teachers overheard it and said, no, we don't use that term. Uh, we're just friends. Everyone's friends here. Hmm. And so she was essentially told that she wasn't allowed to call her best friend her best friend. So when the mother found out about this, she was she was upset. Yeah, she was very upset. She was upset, you know, for numerous reasons. Uh, one, and the biggest reason is because her daughter was upset. Her daughter felt like she, and this is what her mother told me, her daughter felt like, she did something wrong by just being friends with someone. And so, like many four-year-olds, uh, Julia, who is the four-year-old, she uh, likes to use the term best. In this case, it was best buddy. But as her mother tells me, every week she has a best best friend or of course. best dad even. and thing. Yeah, like every other four-year-old. So, she probably has a uh, best buddy in the neighborhood and a best buddy at school and a best buddy. Exactly. And even today, she might have a new best friend, because mm-hmm. that's what four-year-olds do. Of course. Uh, but so that was, uh, yeah, certainly struck a chord, a, a big nerve for, for that mother. Um, and so, yeah, she took her uh, daughter out, and uh, it's been about a month since they haven't been back to school. And, and she decided to, to pull her the for the rest of the year. And you reached out to the preschool, and what did they oh, have yeah. to say to you? So we uh, were unsuccessful with uh, really getting a hold of the preschool. When we ran the story last week, it was uh, it was uh, spring break. So we went to the school and, and no one was there, but I, I reached, I called, I emailed, uh, I even went to the home of the director, uh, reached out to all of the board members uh, for any kind of comment or anything. We, we really just wanted to, to understand it. It wasn't... Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, any other reason other than that, but uh, even then, uh, didn't, in a week, we never got a response back. I did reach out to the school uh, again today and did talk to the director, um, and I gave her the option of you know talking to us on camera again or just talking to us in general, and uh, you know they still have not decided one way or the other if they'd like to talk to us. They just really didn't want to touch it. Exactly. Yeah. That's what that's the way it seems right now. I mean, right. that, you know, certainly that could change tomorrow or it could even change sure. later today. Um, we're hoping that's the case. I, I just find it fascinating having raised four small children that they've been in the business of early childhood education for decades and that this would be their policy mm-hmm. because it would seem to me, my, my initial reaction was, you know, when you have children of that age, the worst thing you can do is impose adult motivations onto children, right? So the, the whole notion that a child of that age would either intend to or feel exclusion because of language like that, you know, that's an mm-hmm. opportunity where the child is expressing happy emotions, happy thoughts, right, about a close relationship with someone they like playing with. And, and that's kind of uh, what, what the mother was upset about as well, because yeah. her daughter, you know, now feels like it's not okay to show love and affection towards 
uh, you know, someone else. Was there anything else at the school that upset the mother, or was this the first and only instance? Uh, is, from what she said, she thoroughly enjoyed the school mm. leading up to this. Mm. Uh, they've had no problems. Uh, you know, I've, I've seen on, on social media and gotten a few calls from parents saying that uh, this mother had an axe to grind. What that axe was to grind, I, I don't know. She never once brought anything up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like, she, like I said, she had told us that she enjoyed it there, and she loved the fact that her daughter had a best friend there that uh, she would ask her twice a week, you know, do we get to go see so-and-so today? And she'd get all out mm-hmm. of bed quickly and get dressed and everything. Mm-hmm. And so it seemed like they enjoyed it. But, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it doesn't seem like uh, there were any issues before. At least not that's not what the mother told me. Well, Gary Broad, thanks so much. It was an interesting story that certainly hit a nerve with a lot of people. Thank you for having me. The You know what? Uh, um, Malika's got a time issue. Should she we get her up? up here now? Yes. yes. Okay. Bam. Bam. What do you want? Bam. The next tragedy may be that of your daughter, or your son, or yours, or yours, or yours. An excerpt from the classic 1936 propaganda film, Reefer Madness. And here we are, my math isn't very good now, 82 years later, mm-hmm. is that yeah. right? That's right. 82 years after Reefer Madness, and we are just a few short months away from legalized uh, marijuana sales and use here in Massachusetts. What better time to bring in someone who is the opposite of madness, <laughs> sane, <laughs> rational, fact-based, our very own doctor here at WBZ, Dr. Malika Marshall. Hi, doctor. Hey, John. Hi, hey, Paula. Malika. How you doing? Good. You ready to talk about pot? Always. <laughs> All right. right? You get, I bet you're getting a lot of questions. Are you getting yeah. questions in your practice? Not so much in my practice, because I do urgent care. So, I mean, sometimes we get some patients who walk in high, but (laughs) oftentimes they're not having questions about sort of the the pros and cons of marijuana use they're just Mm -hmm. using. So, Well, as the, the big moment approaches, July 1st, what should parents know about the state of the art of the research into POTS effect, you know, not just on their kids, but on themselves? I think to summarize it, I should say, we just don't know everything. Mm. And as a pediatrician and as a mom, I am certainly not at a point where I would advocate pot use or marijuana use by teenagers or young people in general. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a study that came out last week in the in JAMA Psychiatry as a journal, and it sort of suggested that Young people, teens and young adults who sort of self-identify as heavy users, take that as you may, um, that they had slightly decreased scores on cognitive tests, so tests of learning and memory and attention. Now, the, the differences were slight. And the interesting thing about it is that those effects seemed to wane after 72 hours. So that was mm. sort of good news, that even if you're young person is a heavy user that hopefully the effects will wear off. Mm. That said, this was sort of a review of 69 prior studies. That said, there have been some studies 
to suggest that there could be long-term effects on the developing brain of a young person who's using pot. Mm -hmm. So we're getting conflicting information out there, and we just don't know all the answers. I'm sorry, just a quick follow on that. Why why are we still so uncertain? I mean, marijuana's been around. We've never been allowed to study it, Well, it's been around in the culture. Is that it, that the researchers just haven't had access to the data they need? Yeah, I think so. And I think, unfortunately, our... um, uh, politics or our legislation is sort of getting ahead of its skis, is that what mm-hmm. famous attorney likes mm-hmm. to say? Yeah. That we just haven't caught up with how quickly yeah. the legislation is changing around the country. So I think scientists are very quickly trying to figure out what are the, the benefits, and there seem to right. be some benefits, but it is not all good and it is not all bad. And right. before we start advocating it for anyone, whether it's a young person or an adult, I think we just need to know more. This is the hard thing, don't you think? Because all of a sudden we we have two different trains of thought going full speed now. I had a neurologist friend who would say to people, you know, why do you think the stereotype of a pothead is, hey, man, you know, the slow talking, like cognitively impaired person? He's like, because it kills brain cells. Like every neurologist knows this, right? Good imitation, talk- Paul, oh, thank by you. the way. Hey, dude. Right. Yeah. Around a few. Sorry, you know. sorry. But here's the problem now. You've got a generation of young people who are like, it's like a beer, Right. It's nothing. Right. And that's, and that's my fear. And so th- this is the fear for parents, for just the culture at large. Who's right? And define heavy user, as you mentioned before, slight user. I mean, we are just in completely user. unknown territory. What, right. As a doctor, I mean, what, what are we supposed to think? Um, I don't know, except for I can tell you as a parent who has now a 13-year-old, that I'm having discussions with him and his younger and brother and sister all the time about you're going to hear a lot of conversations and a lot of information about legalization of marijuana. That does not mean it's okay for you to use. Um, because Just I think like we you still... can't have a glass of scotch. Exactly, exactly. Um, and, and, I, and I am afraid, again, both as a doctor and, a, and as a mother, that young people are sort of getting that message that, you know, it's no big deal. I mean, if, yeah. if it's going to be legal now, that must mean it's okay. Um, but as we know, with a lot of things that are legal, that they can be dangerous. I mean, there's tons of stuff that you can buy over the counter that could be harmful to you, depending on how you're using it and whether you have any conditions that would put you at higher risk for getting sick from something. So just because something's legal or something's available does not mean that you should be using it. I mean, uh, doctor, from following the whole debate over the ballot question that was approved here now, coming up on four years ago, uh, one of the most contentious issues was the question of edibles and that, you know, uh, that even people who are experienced with smoking marijuana can be taken by surprise by the potency of what's in an edible uh, and that the edibles and sort of candy products can be very attractive to young kids who shouldn't be going anywhere near marijuana in any form. Do you share those concerns? I do. I was speaking to someone not too long ago who had gone into one of those dispensaries, right? And she was amazed 
by the variety, by the color. Like it, you walk in, and I guess it's kind of like a candy yeah, shop. The really. gummy bears, and they've got the, the gummies, and they've got the the hard candies, and they've got the, right lollipops and all those things. They've got chocolates and you know brownies cookies. and cooked bait. The rookie goods. cookie, the rookie cookie. Um, and I guess they had someone there who was supposed to be knowledgeable about how potent they were and which ones were supposed to treat anxiety and which ones were supposed to treat pain. But honestly. There's not a lot of data to back any of that stuff up yet. That's not to say it's not coming. I mean, there are studies being done out there on CBD oils and on the effects of, of marijuana on chronic pain and arthritis and people with seizures and things like that. Like, the data is coming. It's just not there yet. And it's kind of like the e-cigarettes, right? Like, for someone who is trying to quit smoking, it is probably better for them to use an electronic cigarette than to actually use real tobacco, but kids are thinking, hey, it's got to be, it's not a cigarette, right? It's got to be safe. And they're colorful and they've got these pretty oils and things. Like, I mean, that all that stuff is so tempting to young people. And the more they're told it's unsafe, the more attractive it becomes. Like, like what are the Tide Pods? Mm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> now, that, that I don't understand. <laughs> well, just to put a period on this, doctor, the, uh, just the other day, the governor of Colorado, one unearly legal pot state, uh, came at uh, John Hickenlooper is his name. He came out and said he's open to the idea of repealing their law because so many unexpected issues have cropped up. That must give you pause. Well, we didn't even talk about, I still worry about motor vehicle accidents and the effects, you know, on, on public health, like whether people are going to suffer the consequences because Joe Schmo over there is is high on marijuana. So there, I, and I, and Forgive me, I can't quote the study, but I feel like on 420, right, the, yep. the pot holiday or whatever it is, um, that there is an increase in the number of car crashes yeah. because it's people like a 12% are increase. driving. Right. And people go, oh, no, but they're so – do your impression again, Paula. Hey, man. Hey, man. Right? <laughs> like, how could anybody like that get mm. into a car accident? Well, it's because their brain is being slowed. Their attention span, right. their processing speed, their ability to react quickly is all dulled. On that, on that drug. Leave us with some hope, Doctor. Is there anything out there that's fun, that's actually also good for us? Exercise, although I don't really find exercise fun. I know you do, Miss <laughs> Paula. How about sex? I do. Sex, yes. Although I do. We're have, in Massachusetts, you, John. No we, one will talk about it. <laughs> and I do have an interesting story that I'll tell you from clinic doing once it, the mics are off about, about how, yes, yeah, sex is, is, is healthy and fun and all of those things, but it too can be abused and lead to unforeseen unintentional consequences. She's saying right. sex can kill you, John. Sex like can multiple kill you. children. Right. That's what it can lead to. And it can lead to a lot of children, yes. All right, I'll be careful, I promise. I'll be careful, John. Those who made it home with alcohol warming their veins probably still have shoveling to face tomorrow. But that's tomorrow. And for now, it's enough just to make it through the night. Malika is a fountain of information and knowledge, and even she is saying... I don't know. She's like that emoji with the hands up. You know, we just don't have enough data. So everybody's just kind of taking their lives in their hands and risking whatever. Well, you know, I, I don't want to make light of it because uh, the fact is we, there's this off-again, on-again controversy about uh, gun violence research mm. by the Centers for Disease Control. Mm -hmm. Because going back, it had to be 10, 15 years ago, the pro-gun types in Congress 
uh, outlawed the mm -hmm. use of federal funds to do research on gun violence. Right, right. Uh, and I, I guess recently there have been renewed attempts to try to reinstitute that, mm -hmm. that, but the bottom line is, you know, what do we have medical science for yeah. if not to try to actually find out what yeah. the facts are? If we're going to pass laws, we better have the facts first. And as Malika put it, I, maybe we're a little out over our skis on this yes, one. We'll yeah. find out. No, we're going to find but out. But did Big we have time. all the facts when we said alcohol is okay? But, you know, like it's like you had said, alcohol is one of Very the biggest killers. Yes, yeah. yeah. You know, so yes, maybe. We had, any facts we had about nothing. 6,000 years ago when alcohol was. Right. right. The facts Invented. and the risks are not what's driving the debate. Money and cultural and attitudes are what's yeah. driving it. That's yeah. the answer, yeah. That's the problem. Yep. So we're up over 100 subscribers, which is exciting. Okay. How do people subscribe, Paula? They just we are can available yeah, on iTunes. We are yeah. available on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Stitcher. Podbean, Radio Public, and Google Play. Or cbsboston.com. You yes. can subscribe right there. Yes. So. Right? And uh, it's fantastic. And we again uh, invite, beg, implore you to share your reaction of what you're hearing. Tell us what you like. Mm -hmm. Tell us what you hate. Tell us what you'd like to hear more of, less of. Uh, my Twitter tag is at Keller at Large. My email is Keller at WBZTV.com. And Paula Eben? Mm -hmm. um, at Paula Eben WBZ. My email is pebben at CBS.com. And we would. We would love to hear your thoughts, your suggestions, your uh, suggested taglines for us instead of we'll be zing you. Yeah. Um, tell and a topics. friend, too. Yeah, Please. tell a friend and, and topics that you'd like to hear discussed. Well, I guess on that note, we'll be one, two, three. We'll be, we'll be seeing, seeing you. you. Do you like it, Brooke? I don't want to be a part of that one. Oh. <laughs> it's a throwback. Um, yeah. I'm sorry. I'm watching John next to me going, ready? One, two, three. <laughs> a little contrived for you. A little bit. Okay, little bit. all right. All right. I'll, I'll admit it. All right. All right.